This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Hello there. This is Selena Durgan, editor of The Biblical Mind. We're so grateful for you, our listeners, and we're curious about your thoughts and questions regarding the intellectual world of the Bible. We are now inviting listeners to send us questions, and we'll start answering them in upcoming Q&A episodes. You can email your questions to our administrator at cht underscore administrator at tkc.edu, which you can also find in the show notes. We look forward to hearing from you. What I find when I speak on immigration in the Bible is oftentimes people's views are not shaped by the Bible. Mm. So they have actually made their decision on what they think about it based on other factors, uh, whether it's economics, national security, you know, southern border, um, crowded schools, uh, law enforcement, things like this, which are all important discussions. But uh, they actually have made a political decision. Mm. And then they come and they look for some verses in the Bible to support that political position. And that position can be more to the left or more to the right, but I see that as a common phenomenon. And so what you find is that people might have a couple, two or three favorite verses, and that defines their view. Mm -hmm. And they miss the breadth of what the scripture has to say about migration and migrants. I think a lot of when I teach undergrads uh, enter the Old Testament, a lot of them are shocked about how much it has to say and how much it continually returns to it. But um, I think it's fair to say that it not only has things to say, but it shows a lot about the, the role of migrants and migration in the life of Israel. Um, do, you, do you think you could make a whole case from the showing rather than telling uh, of, of migration in the Bible? Yes, and I think part of it's just getting a different orientation. If we can appreciate that the history of humanity is mm. the history of migration. Mm. I mean, it's even in Genesis 1 where we're told to fill the earth. Well, how does that happen? Well, people move. And this is the, the history of the world. And so if we can appreciate that the Bible is, you know, cutting a slice into a particular part of humanity, the people of Israel, and later uh, the people of God in the New Testament, because you're still migrating in the New Testament. I think that helps them understand. What we're seeing today is something we've seen throughout history. The numbers we've never seen before. Hmm. But the phenomena of migration, that's as old as time. And so we should not be surprised that the Bible is talking about it as the people of God experience it, and that they can trust that God is with them in those movements. Uh, they, they go through war. They go through famine. The, the very things that drive migration today are, are driving people in the ancient world as well. Can I ask you to say more about that? You know, you, you basically said what it, what it means to be human is to be a migrant of sorts. Yeah. A lot of people are just going to instinctually 
reject that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not biblically, but it doesn't feel right to them. So could you say more like, how yeah. do you see that in Genesis 1 through 11, maybe? Yeah, I mean, well, not even Genesis 1 alone, it's just common human experience. It, you know, if if we just look at what migration means, it just means people on the move. Mm-hmm. Now, in this country, people move all the time. They move to a new city, they move to a new state, they move across the country, maybe 2,000 miles away. They just haven't crossed national borders, but they've mm-hmm. crossed what we call state lines. So the migration piece we're, do, we're doing it inside the country all the time. Mm. Uh, in fact, I was talking to a, this is several years ago, a Chinese missiologist, and he was telling me that there was 80 million people of internal migration in, in the Republic of China. So, I mean, we're seeing massive numbers, but it's the human phenomenon. And so you see at the beginning of Genesis, uh, doesn't begin well. I mean, they're, they're right. kicked out of the garden, so they have to begin to wander. Uh, and Cain wanders, and and so what you see, even in those early chapters, are people moving around, and then of course you get to the Tower of Babel, and you know if you can even think of the Tower of Babel story as kind of a kickstart of migration, um, you know there it is. Uh, if you yeah. look at the Table of Nations in chapter ten, they're telling you where all these peoples are, and. Right, uh, and so there's this consciousness of movement uh, and different peoples in different places that we see very early on in the Bible, and of course, as I said, you see it in this country, uh, not only in our history, from migration in, but also migration within the bounds of the country too. Hmm. And now I have to admit, listeners, this will drive them crazy because I always drop these little. I have these really controversial views, but I have a controversial view on Genesis ten and eleven, which is. I think it's only the sons of Ham that go into build Babel and that actually Genesis 10 is telling us language proliferation is actually a part of the plan as people move into different places, different languages emerge. I think linguistics actually supports that geographically. But I think for what you point out about about Americans, this is one of the things I had to point out when I lived in uh, Europe is, you know, I can go 16, 20, 30 hours in, in any direction and not hit another language or not need for another language. Right, right. I can't go two hours, you know, in Europe without needing another language right. or different dialect. Right. Um, so th- there really is this unique phenomenon to America where we've somehow managed to create a, a stable monoculture, at least for whites um, and some to some extent for blacks in, in America. And so we really don't, we feel like we don't, this issue of migration has nothing to do with us. How much of that has to do also with our migrations are fully funded and chosen by us. Uh, and there, there are no real pressures to migrate outside of, I want this kind of a job. I want this kind of a life. I want to live in this kind of a location. I think it's an excellent observation. Uh, you know, one thing, and there's actually, categories of migration studies. And, and one of them is what's called forced migration. So what mm-hmm. we're seeing globally, even now with the Ukraine, mm-hmm. is the forced migration of literally millions overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really is not uncommon in the history of the world, where you have invasions going on throughout history. Uh, and also famines, you're seeing this in, in North Africa, for instance. So uh, Forced migration is what you see going on in the Bible um, and what you're seeing going on in history itself. So you're right. This country has been very comfortable in that. 
and very self-sustaining. Now, what we've done since the beginning of the Republic, it, which, you know, begins with migration, <laughs> uh, you have the, you know, the colonies. I mean, that that's migration. Um, they might even might, see it as forced migration, religiously forced yeah, migration. Yeah, yeah. Some of it's voluntary. They just want to go somewhere else. Others are fleeing persecution. Uh, and then what we do, uh, this is a tragic story of Af African-Americans, we, we have forced migration of Africans for labor uh, in the South. Uh, that goes on for many decades. And then we know what happens in, in American history. But we also get, throughout time, uh, other migrations coming that, that are kind of forced. Uh, you know, a large Irish migration at mm -hmm. the end of the 19th century, uh, the potato famine for instance. So you, you get all this going on in, in this country and, and the migration of these people groups, because they tend to come like in waves. People, mm -hmm. the, largest, the largest migration in the mid-19th century are the Germans. Mm. Then you move to the Irish and then the Italians. And each of them, when they come, begin very naturally so with their enclaves. Because this is what people do. You're trying to survive in a new place, and so you kind of live together for survival. And then you begin to, to move out. Uh, you do this by marriage. You do this by jobs. And so every immigrant group has done this. My father, for instance, was a son of Irish immigrants. Uh, my mother was Guatemalan. So, um, you know, I come from a mixed heritage. Um, I was raised bilingual and bicultural, so I grew up speaking Spanish, and I lived in Guatemala many years as a professor and things like this. So um, this is a very common human experience. <clears throat> and some of the largest denominations of the of Protestantism begin as ethnic groups, mm -hmm. uh, evangelical free church, right? It was Swedish. Um, and we have seminaries like at Bethel Seminary in Minneapolis. Well, that was the old Swedish Baptists. I mean, mm. so these are all ethnic churches, the Lutherans, largely German and Norwegian and Scandinavian in general. So if you were to go back maybe 75, 100 years, what you have are ethnic churches that mm. eventually will move from their original languages, uh, be it Swedish or German, into English. And you're seeing the same phenomenon, for instance, with uh, Latino churches, where the first generation immigrant, immigrant churches are Spanish speaking. The second generation, they're struggling with uh, English or Spanish or both. I go to a Latino church on Sunday afternoons, and the young people largely speak English. Some of them right. still speak Spanish or kind of a Spanglish, but their mm -hmm. parents want something in Spanish. I mean, so the Spanish or the Latino churches in this country are going through what every immigrant group has gone through, uh, you know, decades or a century or two before. Yeah, so even as Americans, even if you want to think of yourself as a white evangelical um, or white mainline, you, you actually come from the same migrant yeah. ethnic church Some, sometime. Uh, background at some point, yeah. At some point, yeah. Yeah, I spent uh, 11 years in a Brazilian church here in Newark. Oh, okay. And saw all those dynamics of first generation, second generation, yeah. and, you know, yeah. um, all, all the odd dynamics that emerge in uh, East northeast coast uh 
not let Brazilians don't necessarily always like to be called Latino sometimes. Yeah, yes, right. Sometimes no, depending on where they're from. Right. Right. Um, but seeing also that kind of enclave mentality of you start with what's safe. So Brazilians came to this area in Newark because the Portuguese were already here. So they had a linguistic uh, connection okay. Okay. Um, and then moved out very quickly. Now uh, Hispanics have come into the same area. And are, so, you know, if you go into a, a Portuguese bread shop that, uh -huh. um, that used to be run by Brazilians is now run by Ecuadorians, you know. Oh, um, okay. So, yeah, you get layers and layers in there. Yeah. Uh, but with some affinity as well. Um, so I wonder, so here's the typical move I run into. I don't know how much you run into it. Um, but it, essentially you can make this case very strongly from the Torah uh, and the prophets, you're a prophet scholar of, of renown, right? And, um, that, okay, we have to care for the foreigner. I think there's two parts to this question. One is, but doesn't that mean the foreigner who has legally immigrated and has kind of uh, gotten their green card. That's one question that lots of people are going to ask. And then secondly, do we still have to do all this foreigner care? Cause Jesus came, the old is gone and the new is here. Uh, and we're all just one big happy family and, um, right. and we're all just law abiding citizens now. I mean, cause as you noted, this becomes a legal issue very quickly yes, for a lot of Christians yes. in, in America, particularly right. and yeah. in the UK as well. Boy, that's, you know, I get that question all the time. Uh, so there'd be several ways to respond. One is when people normally start talking about legality, I can almost be assured that they do not know how bad the American immigration legal system is. Mm, oh, for sure. Uh, they don't understand that it hasn't been updated in decades, uh, that it is basically non-functional that it is grounded on visas that are that are quoted every year q u o t you know a quota um for instance the quota for unskilled labor yearly is five to ten thousand uh right. we guesstimate that we need at least half a million uh so very quickly the the whole thing just is non-functional right and so that, that half a million, to be clear, is is just a lot of statutory neglect. The government intentionally looks the other way because we wouldn't be able to eat, um, right? If there weren't massive amount of immigrants coming through, right? So. And, and the sad thing is, years ago, um, there was a move. This is uh, about fifteen years ago to connect the quota numbers to economic need. Mm -hmm. well, that's just common sense, right? But What's happened in immigration, as we know, even build up to the midterms coming up, is that immigration gets politicized, and both sides have gone to extremes, and, and neither of which are actually functional mm -hmm. alternatives. And so, uh, so the first thing I would say is uh, the U.S. immigration system is a total mess. It has been for a long time. Hmm. So. Um, but what happens is I think people just assume that it's, if it's American law, it must be good law. <laughs> and what we also forget is that we change laws all the time. So when laws are bad or inefficient, we change them uh, at every level you can imagine in this country. But when it comes to immigration, it kind of gets frozen in people's minds. So that's part of, that's part of the problem. <laughs> now, the other thing that I would say um, is when I have these discussions and, and with full consciousness of how 
chaotic things are. Uh, people go, what, so what should we do? And so my question to them is, well, who is the we that you're talking mm. about? Are you talking about the U.S. government or are you talking about the church? And those are two different conversations. Because the idea of caring for vulnerable people, which is a biblical theme from start to finish, is a mandate for the people of God. Now, um, you know, if, if the U.S. government wants to do what it wants to do, well, okay, but that's not, that's not the role of the church. And so uh, the church has to understand maybe its role vis-a-vis the U.S. government, but it should not define its stance nor its actions according to a particular U.S. party, political party, uh, because then our faith gets compromised as it, you know, the, the, the Christian faith has been compromised from day one in different places and different times by different political systems. And you see that compromise going on in ancient Israel, I mean, this is what happens to religion in general. Hmm. Religions get compromised by political ideologies. I mean, you can talk about the rise of militant uh, Hinduism in India, uh, hmm. or militant Islam. You see where the religions get, um, you know, just empowered, or, or they empower political stances. And so, we see that in this country as well. Uh, and we, we've 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 dropped the difference between the church and, and U.S. culture and U.S. politics, and we are of another kingdom. Hmm. This country is getting crazier and crazier, and both political parties are getting crazier and crazier. Yeah, and uh, I think we need to just appreciate that we have another king, another kingdom, and we can never be aligned. We can't because hmm. uh, then we lose our prophetic edge. Yeah. It's, uh, one, it's, can I, can I oh, just, go ahead. Yeah, please. Yeah. So one, let me <laughs> – you know, let me give you a Bible verse. Okay. <laughs> in Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19, which is my favorite verse on these verses on these things. Um, you know, God is, is, has been, you know, mandating that they take care of, of all vulnerable people, whether widows or orphans or the poor. And he includes foreigners because foreigners are vulnerable people. We see it all the time. Uh, even as our ancestors, whatever they were, or whenever they came, were vulnerable uh, for like a generation or two. So um, he says, and you will love them because I do. Mm. Uh, and then he says, and I give them food and clothing. Okay, well, so on the one hand, when people say, well, why should we care for the foreigner? I w- I'd say, well, because God does. I can't give you a better answer than that. Mm. And then he says, by giving them food and clothing, which means it's tangible. And that food and clothing has to come through his people. So, um, and we see that going through, you know, the New Testament as well. I mean, Jesus is caring for vulnerable people and people that everyone else rejects. I think the classic case would be the Samaritans. Hmm. Uh, The church, early church, is made up of diaspora peoples. And it's not easy. I mean, they're having ethnic you know, conflict in the early right. church. Even in the New Testament, you see it in the epistles. So it's, it's not easy. Uh, but the idea of a multinational, multiracial, multilinguistic church is there, even in Genesis, the people of mm-hmm. God are a mixed multitude. So, I mean, so, um, yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of a, a Bible piece there for you. 
Yeah, it's funny. I I would go to um, Exodus twenty twenty two because this is like right as they're coming. You know, they've just gotten yep. across the waters uh, of the Red Sea, and it's yep. you know, and you should not oppress the foreigner or the widow or the orphan. And if you do, you know, yep. I'll make your wives widows and your children orphans. You know, um, yeah. and even Leviticus, you you know, the heart of a foreigner. Um, and then love, I would always have to remind people, love your neighbor as yourself. A, Jesus didn't say that. He's quoting Leviticus. Yeah, Leviticus. And he knows that if you read on from Leviticus 19.18, you get to, and love the foreigner as yourself, yeah. for you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that's the hardest neighbor to love, actually, is, your, is right. the foreigner. Right. And it's in the same chapter. <laughs> so there it is. So coming back to this issue of um, the, the, the new has come and the old is gone, that kind of what we call might call soft Marcionism in the biz. Right, right. Um, would Jesus like, would there be that same impulse for Jesus or would he have to go back to the excess and say, Oh, my people were once foreigners. And so I know we, we, you know, ideologically we know what it's like to be a foreigner or could Jesus himself in some way say that he was a, a refugee or foreigner? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that, that's a common idea. I mean, he does begin his life as a refugee. He has to flee to Egypt. Hmm to escape Herod. Uh, they run away. And so uh, forced migration, there it is. Hmm. And we don't know how long he's in Egypt. It doesn't seem to be a very long time. But at least early on in his life, his little baby boy, uh, you know, his family is a family of refugees. Uh, they hmm. eventually return. That's a whole other thing, is return migration. And so you have that with Jesus, but what is Ezra and Nehemiah? It's return migration. Hmm. Uh, so you're seeing the phenomena that we see today, even in the ancient world, uh, Old and New Testament, because these are human human things. I mean, so some things are kind of constant. Yeah. Well, I would oh, say one more thing. Sorry about yeah. that. Um, because I'm an Old Testament guy, I mean, I, I get this kind of question, well, you know, we're New Testament Christians or something, um, which is a, has all kinds of issues with it. But... There's certain constants in the Word of God. Hmm. And one of the constants is the character of God. And so the character of God will be steady, and therefore there will be demands that this person, the person of God, will put on his people that transcend the Testaments. And one of them is the care of the vulnerable. And, um, you know, the scripture actually will name them as the poor, the orphans, and the widows, and the foreigner. Um, so, so the, the idea, well, old new, old versus New Testament, maybe in terms of how the law functions. I mean, that's you know, this was an ancient law to organize an ancient society. Well, why would anyone want to mimic that? That would make no sense. Mm -hmm. What, what transcends that particular manifestation of the character of God is the care of the vulnerable. Um, so, yeah, so that Old New Testament dichotomy doesn't really work. Yeah. I think, okay, so a lot of people might be able to get on board with the sympathies to, okay, this is part of our outreach, our care. It's part of our duty, if you want to put it in that sense. Um, I wonder, you know, flipping the coin to the other side, um, would you argue that, that 
each, you know, the church as a whole or each church or whatever, every Christian community actually needs the other. It needs the foreigner. It needs the outsider, like constructively to understand the kingdom of God. You know, I would say that's true, but in a bigger sense. So I think the church needs to have vulnerable people in its midst. One category of which would be the foreigner. Hmm. But uh, for the church to actually live out its calling, you should be able to see vulnerable people, widows, orphans, uh, alcoholics, uh, single moms, uh, abused uh, young people. We should be kind of uh, including them and embracing them. And, and, And one other category with its own particular set of challenges, and each one of those groups has its own particular set of challenges, uh, is the foreigner. So when I speak to Latino churches, you know, what I will say to them is, la iglesia angla nos necesita. Hmm. I mean, the Anglo church actually needs us (laughs) because we remind them of what it means to be foreign. And uh, I think that's important. Uh, The Old Testament is, is constantly saying, you can't forget, you can't forget, you can't forget. And part of the problem of this country is that we have historical amnesia. Mm. So the only immigrant memories that we have um, are like St. Patrick's Day or, you know, October That's my Fest. people. Yeah. And so, but it's... I'm biracial as well, by the way. I'm Scottish and Irish. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting history. Uh, but... So, but it's been reduced to, you know, a parade and everyone wears green and drinks green beer or something. I mean, but. Right. Something that know, absolutely baffles real Irish people. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the thing, you know, when, when God is reminding them in the law in the Old Testament about you are once slaves in Egypt, he's reminding them of their socioeconomic and political experience. Hmm. And we've just, you know erased that and we've idealized it but you know my my grandfather came over as a single man irishman went to montana as a cowboy of all things and then he moved to boston all irish catholic right so all irish catholic come from boston and then you know my grandmother was a mail order bride i mean this is all those kind of stories uh the the ghettos the irish ghettos in new york and boston the the gang wars between the Italians and the Irish, all these things we've just totally forgotten hmm. and we've just whitewashed it. Um, so that's part of our problem is the, is the loss of, of memory. And so immigrants can keep that memory in a fresh kind of way. Hmm. It doesn't make it easy. It's complicated uh, at so many levels. Hmm. But uh, I think the church needs those visible uh, human reminders. Um. Yeah, I'm tempted to ask, how did we get here in some way? Like, you know, what was the road? Um, And again, going back to my church, you know, when I go back to the Midwest to visit family and I describe the church that I went to. And then, you know, inevitably somebody would ask kind of uncomfortably, like, are are some of these people illegal? And I'd say, yeah, half of them are illegal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're constantly coming and going. 
And let me tell you what that actually means is that means that, you know, usually at 18 years old, they made a decision to overstay a visa. You know, when you're least capable of making wise decisions, they made a decision to overstay the visa, which means they can't go back to their home country and see their family anymore, um, which means they're kind of landlocked here, um, which also means at any minute, which this happened somewhat regularly is when ICE, what they used to call ICE. Yeah. Um, somebody would just go missing. A guy wouldn't show show up for you know dinner one night, and then you would have to file a police report for a missing person, and then the police would eventually say, "Oh, he's in ICE custody," and then you'd have to go petition ICE with an immigration lawyer to see if they'll tell you even where the person is at. And right. I mean, it literally, is like a kidnapping off the streets. Um, yeah. And so I'd always encourage people because they would become so uneasy with the idea that you might have illegal people in your church. Um, Again, go spend some time in what they used to call an INS office. Like, just go sit in the waiting room for an hour and and talk to people and see what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and you might gain some sympathy. But I guess the question, you know, in the route you just traced that's that's burgeoning from my diatribe here is, why didn't, you know, my Irish heritage, why didn't, why wasn't it imbued in me? Oh, like we were once immigrants, like we were the poor scum of New York that were mistreated uh, and looked down upon by the, you know, the supposed natives. So therefore, I see these other people and think, oh, these are my brothers and sisters, you know, um, like what happened or what do you think allows that gear shift to make the to flip into where now Irish Americans look down and say, like, wait, you have illegal people in your church? And I mean, Irish mixed, you know, right, European right. mutts these days. So. <clears throat> I mean, it's it's an historical thing. I mean, um, you know, there there was no federal immigration law really. The first major immigration law at federal level was 1882. I mean, so the country mm. exists for a century uh, with very hodgepodge state-led migration stuff. Um, so the idea, well, my ancestors came legally, and I'm going, do you even know what that means? Mm. Uh, and legally back then was you'd, you'd show up at Ellis Island on the East Coast and Angel Island on the West Coast, San Francisco Bay. Most people don't even ever even heard of that one. Hmm. And, you know, they'd register. You'd, you'd sign your name. And, <clears throat> and if you were healthy, you could come. Uh, with all kinds of interesting things. I, I have a, an old, a New Testament scholar colleague. His name is Doug Moo, M-O-O. Oh, and I said, Doug, that's really an odd name. I said, did you... Was that hard growing up? Did people kind of tease you? Like, oh, you have no idea. So I said, where did that come from? Well, you know, like in the 19th century, his, his background is like Norwegian or something. Hmm. And so they asked him at, you know, that table where they're registering, you know, what's your name? And it, to the guy signing it, 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 right. it, looked, it sounded like Moo. So he wrote down M-O-O. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it's stuck, you know. Yeah. Um, so all these kinds of complicated things that we don't even know about. But, you know, this, this idea of a second generation or third generation forgetting and then becoming indignant when others come, that's a very common human phenomenon as well. Hmm. So what we see in this country is not unusual. Uh, the particular explanation will be unique to this country. But the, the phenomenon of, you know, of forgetting, uh, I mean, that's, this is what's going on in ancient Israel, right? That they're, yeah. they're just forgetting. Yeah. And um, so... That's not, I'm not surprised by it. I mean, that, that's what people do. Because you you want to identify with the new place. 
So uh, you, I'm sorry, my all these buttons are going on. Oh, yeah. I don't all okay. the dinging. Yeah. Uh, if I turn the sound off on this one, I'll turn off our right. sound. Right. No, I'll, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Um, but um, so it's very common this this uh, integration process. Right. And you see where some will work so hard at integrating that part of that is erasing the past. And so mm -hmm. I talk to like second generation Latinos and they'll tell me things like, uh, I was talking to one guy, it's been about two weeks ago now, his parents were Cuban. And so they came as refugees, you know, out of Fidel Castro's Cuba. And the parents were so grateful to be on U.S. soil and so uh, wanting never to go back to Cuba mm. because of what they had experienced under Castro that they refused to teach their children Spanish. Oh, wow. And, and so they wanted them to become, quote, unquote, Americans. That's very common, actually. Mm. And so I have a colleague, Puerto Rican uh, parents, same phenomenon. The grandparents speak Spanish, the parents speak Spanish, but they refuse to teach him Spanish. And so here he is this Puerto Rican guy, you know, with a Latino name, but he can't speak Spanish. So right. that's a very common phenomenon. So um, what ends up happening besides the cultural linguistic piece is that what's happened in this country is that it gets wedded with a political party, which ratchets up the emotional quota of that discussion. Yeah, I, I, my last question was actually going to be, um, how does language complicate this? And I think, you know, one thing I've noticed from teaching in different countries and uh, linguistic context is if you make the slightest effort, especially as an American, nobody expects anything from you as an American. It's so easy. Yeah. But if you make the slightest attempt to try and speak uh, the, that local language, um, it's more than just communication. Like people pick it up as almost <clears throat> like a like a love letter to these people. You, know, you can say the exact same words in English, have them translated, even if you're stumbling through in Portuguese or Spanish or Hebrew or whatever, Arabic or something. It just uh, changes the dynamics. And and what I've come to realize is learning another language, especially as an adult, where you you weren't raised as a, a bilingual. Um, it it rewires something in you compassionately like yeah. like that that feeling of like oh how would you say this in that other language it does something to you internally and so i wonder if the monolingual culture of america has actually done uh done a lot of work against us in, on this front and maybe something as simple as you know in st louis when i was a pastor we constantly had international refugees in waves you know it was the uh uh, the Bosnians and then the Somalis and then uh, the Bhutanese. And um, and so we were constantly, you know, it wasn't feasible to learn all of those languages. But I wonder if it would be like one simple thing a church could do is actually start to learn a language of an immigrant population in their midst. That's a wonderful idea. And one of the things that, that I understand, because I go to an English-speaking church in the mornings. Mm. <clears throat> and then I go to a Spanish-speaking church in the afternoon. 
because of my background, there's something about singing in Spanish and hearing a sermon in Spanish and then talking with other believers in Spanish that feeds my soul. And what people don't understand oftentimes is that every person has a language of the heart. Mm-hmm. And so even, you know, and the language of the heart is not only a spiritual, but I mean, even like, you know, my wife is, you know, from the Houston suburbs, but, you know, she, I'm, you know, she, she loves Latin music, but, you know, there's Latin love songs. They work in a way that English doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much ingrained in the culture and, and, there's a love language. There's a, a cultural language. And so when a, a person comes from another country and they have to learn English because they have to navigate this country, um, it becomes a negotiation of, of hmm. and this is another thing that people don't appreciate. Becoming an immigrant is actually a lifelong negotiation of loss. Mm-hmm. Loss of language, loss of food, loss of nonverbal language, uh, loss of how relationships work in the family, let alone in the culture. Um, you, you'll dress differently. Um, you'll greet people differently. Um, you'll celebrate birthdays, Christmas, uh, Easter. All, and you're constantly giving stuff away. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the painful things that all immigrant groups go through. And this is one of the reasons why first generation tends to be in enclaves, because there's a sense that we need to keep our sanity. We need to keep ourselves true to ourselves. Uh, And so over time, that begins to dissipate. And so you see it with Latino families where the kids are embarrassed by their language or embarrassed Mm -hmm. by their culture and the home dynamics that that generates. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've been in Latino churches, sounds like you have too, where the, the adults are speaking Spanish, the kids are speaking English, the parents will speak to the kid in Spanish and the kid will respond in yeah. English, or the parent will try to speak some form of English to the, you know, and that's in a public space, which is the church. I mean, you imagine at the house and the home. Right. Now, all this stuff's going on behind the curtain. <clears throat> and if we had a sense of that, uh, of which language is a major part, uh, I think that would help. And the thing is, this country was founded on a multitude of languages. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you one quick example. I don't know how our time is going. but We're good. Okay, so uh, Benjamin Franklin, I had this article that he, you know, he published. Well, he was worried about the Germans because there was a German enclave, right, on the East Coast. And, uh, and he was worried about the Germans, he says, because, you know, they had their own churches, their own newspapers, their own schools, their own stores. And he was worried if they could become anglicized. Hmm. And so then he goes, and the men beat their mothers. And you're going like, where did that come from? And he says, but they can become civilized. Um, and you're like, my gosh. And then he says, they have a different pigment than we do. Pigmentation, right? And I'm going, really? The skin color of a German versus a Brit is that different? But what you're seeing is this, there was this linguistic stuff going on in the colonies. There was Mm. Germans, there was French, right? Um, Certainly Dutch. Dutch, yes, very good. Uh, And in the South, in in Florida, which no one talks about, would be the Spanish. Mm. It wasn't part of the colonies, but the Spanish were present in Florida very early on, let alone the Southwest. 
So you have a multilingual country from the very beginning, and it's gotten more linguistically, you know, uh, diverse over time with all the immigrant groups. But we, we tend to homogenize it. And this is one of the tragic things about this country. This is a monolingual culture, hmm. which in Europe, of course, as you, as you know, isn't, isn't that way. But we have in this country, maybe because we're isolated, we have two oceans on each side. To the north, English speaking, primarily, though there's a French side to Canada as well. In the south is Spanish, and we just kind of ignore that. So we can kind of keep the English enclave uh, because of geographical reasons, probably, too. <clears throat> Well, and as it goes with pidgin and Creole languages, it's it's the 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 language with social political power and economic power yeah. that determines which one's going to become the pidgin and which yeah. one's going to become the spoken language. So, yeah, it's funny because even uh, one of the original demands of Putin when he was going to invade right. Ukraine was that Russian should be the official language. Right. Like, where did that come from? <clears throat> Total imperial imposition, right? Yeah, and but this, you're right. And this is part of what you hear of the, even on the ground uh, from prisoners of war. Speak Russian. Don't speak Ukrainian. If you want food, speak Russian. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah. it becomes a power a power play. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Daniel uh, Carroll wrote us. Yep. Thank you very much for your wisdom, your work over the years on this topic, and uh, your time today. Well, it's been fun to be with you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast. Exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.